If you have your Bibles this morning, turn me to the book of Titus, chapter number 3. Titus, chapter number 3. <clears throat> we are getting close to wrapping up the book of Titus, Lord willing. We will do that next week, and um, then we will transition into something a little different for the month of December, dealing with the birth of Christ. But in Titus, chapter 3... Um, this, in the scriptures, dealing with grace of the heirs of grace and uh, really what grace is for you and I as believers. But I want to preach on this thought, on this little light of mine, uh, this little light of mine. And we want to share this morning just for a moment about how our lives, uh, our testimonies as believers, how it should affect um, what our, how our light shines to the world. And it is important that as children of God that we live according to God's word in, in honor of him and that he is pleased with us. In Titus chapter 3 verse number 1 the Bible says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that having been justified by his grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life this is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works these things are good and profitable to men let us pray Heavenly Father Lord we do come to you in prayer and God, we ask that for the next few moments, Lord, that you might speak to us richly through your word. God, more than, uh, Lord, men's applause, Lord, more than good feelings or emotions, God, what we pray and ask for is that uh, you might be glorified through us. God, may the love and light of Jesus Christ shine brightly in our hearts and through this church. Lord, we need you. Lord, there is nothing we can do in our own power that will have any eternal uh, difference. And yet, Lord, we understand that through you and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do all things. So, God, we ask, Lord, for the gospel's sake, Lord, for the sake of our community, Lord, and for the sake of our family and those who do not know Christ, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit might fill us and anoint us with holy unction, God, that you might have your way done. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This morning I am going to preach on this, but I want to pause for just a moment. Are you okay with that? I want to take a, a slight detour momentarily, and we'll get back to the text. Um, something that's been on my heart for some time now, uh, going back weeks or months, and I've shared some with Jonathan, is about prayer. That our church must get to a place where prayer 
is priority in our church, in our lives of our believers. Um, me and Jonathan have we uh, spent a good bit of time uh, exploring the facilities at Bellevue Baptist, and uh, it's a sanctuary. I counted the seats the best I could, and there was just under seven thousand seats there in that sanctuary. It was unbelievable. Matter of fact, brother Dennis, they just uh, replaced the carpet, and not all the facilities, but what they replaced the carpet of was sixteen acres of carpet. And I was blown away by the size of that ministry. And they are absolutely impacting Cordova for Christ. It's unbelievable. We went around and, we, and toured the facilities. We saw their youth, their children's department, their music programs. And we, we explored and kind of walked the back halls and got lost looking through all the facilities. And, uh, but we came across one room that I believe with all my heart is the difference in them in most churches. And it was not in the sanctuary, and the sanctuary was absolutely stunning. It was not in the youth department, and the youth departments, when you walked in, I thought, my goodness, I would have loved to have had this as a young child. It wasn't in the music, and the music was unbelievable. The big choirs and orchestras, and the music was fascinating. But there was a room on the second floor we walked into, and they called it the prayer room. You walked in, they had little booths for you to go in, and people could put prayer requests in, and then every time you prayed, it would click that you prayed. And you walked into this round room, a circular, I guess more of an oval-shaped room, and in the middle was a cross, and around the walls were scrolls with scripture on it about prayer. There was a big map, and their, their whole motto is, Bellevue loves Memphis, and they prayed for their city and their community. And they had classes there each week, or not classes, but time set up for groups, to come in and pray and they went through one whole year where there was somebody in the prayer room 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days that room was not somebody was not attending it praying for an entire year night and day the difference was prayer we visited a church in cleveland that has done amazing things and they have a prayer room that was when we walked in to visit, Jonathan was with me, walked in, there was people, a lady in there praying, weeping, praying when we walked in. Prayer was focal. And so as a pastor, I, I, we're trying to figure out how we're going to do this and how we go about it. But I believe with all my heart that if we are going to go forward, it will not transpire because we made a, a staff hire, because we remodeled or decorated to make it more appealing. It will not be because we have the newest or best facilities. It'll be because God's power is upon us. And prayer is the key. We must have prayer. Now, other things are, need to be taken care of? Absolutely. There are resources, programs, and things that we should take care of and be faithful with, with what God has given us. But prayer is the difference. And so, I know this is maybe strange for a Sunday morning, but I just wanted to give you a brief view of what God is doing in my heart. That we must go to prayer. And I'd love to just preach on prayer this morning. God has led us back to Titus, but uh, we're going to pray. Uh, and, and I believe that it must start with myself and our church staff. And uh, we 
let Jonathan and James and Brother Ronnie know in the morning we have our staff meeting. And from now on, we're starting our staff meetings off with just prayer. Prayer has to be the focus of everything that we do. And so I want to ask you, church, if you would, to begin to ask God to give you a burden for prayer that you've not had before. To learn to pray. Our community is dying and going to hell. They are. Are we reaching them? I, that's an honest question this morning. This is not where I plan to go this morning whatsoever, but this is where we're at. Are we reaching our community? Are they being saved? Are we bringing them to Christ? I praise the Lord Fisher got baptized, but we've missed something. We've missed something. Uh, I think they gave the stats this past week. Jonathan, do you remember what was the average church baptisms for the last year? I think it was four. It was, it was around three or four was the average church across the entire state. And uh, we didn't even hit that last year. We have got to change something. And it's not the buildings. It's not the programs. It's having the power of God upon what we're doing. Prayer must be focal. And so we're going to be doing stuff going forward. And, and I don't say that to condemn us this morning. I say that because... I, I, what I truly believe is that God is still in the saving business. Amen? We just have to pray. And so we're going to look at doing some things around our church, making prayer a, function, a priority in everything that we do. And we want to give you opportunities to come together and pray. But I encourage you, would you make prayer a, ma a matter of the utmost importance? Well, Titus chapter 3 if you go back to chapter 2, verse number 15, it says, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And then he comes in and says, reminding them to be subject to rulers and authorities. And Paul, dealing with Titus, begins to give some directions. Char Charles Spurgeon said, To remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they must be one, even as we are one? John chapter 17, verse 22 a chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity tune. And what they are saying is Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless. Unite, unite. And that's what we're hearing around the world. Such teaching, according to Spurgeon, though, is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. And verse number 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word of God can be one in Christ. And to teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. That's what Charles Spurgeon had to say. Those are pretty strong words this morning. 
We must be united. We must let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But we must do so. How do we allow our light to shine? We do so by living to a biblical standard, by living to a biblical standard that is pleasing to God and that is glorifying to him. We must be faithful to God's word and to apply it to our life. When we begin to read in verse number 1, in, or chapter, chapter 3 of Titus, the Bible says that we should remind them, again, this is with all authority of the word of God, we should remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities and to obey to be ready for every good work. We are to surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. The biblical standard, when you and I get back to God's word and we begin to apply God's word to our life and we live according to God's word, it will cause us to live a life of surrender. That the world might look at our lives and they may see Jesus Christ in us that he may that they may see us and say listen we see Christ because they are living a life of surrender you cannot be disobedient with a bitter spirit with a contrite spirit towards any kind of authority and then claim to be a Christian that is living pleasing to God we must learn that we are to be the Bible says to be subject to rulers and to authorities to obey now the world tells us that we have to surrender to no one, that we are our own God, our own higher power, that we should live for no one but ourselves. But this is contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible says that we should, should be subject to rulers and authorities. And so we must learn to have our lives uh, in alignment with God, that we should learn how to submit. It does not matter if we were children or you're older or whoever you might be. We are all called to submit and to surrender our lives to higher authorities. I, I might be the pastor of the church, but I still have people that, uh, I, that hold me accountable and that I talk with and pastor friends that I communicate with. And we have church staff and, and deacons and others that I, I report to. And we, it, it's all right for us to be subject to other people. It'd do us good if we humbled ourselves and learned that the Bible standard causes us to live a life of surrender. That should imply and, and, and go into every aspect of our lives. It does not matter what we do. We should learn to live our lives fully surrendered to God. And that includes any power that God has set as authority over our life. A life of surrender. The biblical standard also will cause us to live a life of serenity, if at all possible. In verse number 2 here, the Bible says to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. And so we live the biblical standard. One, we are going to seek to live a life of surrender, that we die to ourselves. That we say, listen, I'm going to put the needs of others above myself. I will humble myself before God and man, but then also we should try to live peaceably a life of serenity with all that we can. And Romans chapter 12, verse number 18, the Bible says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you or as much as that's in your control, live peaceably with all men. And what the Bible's saying is that as believers, we should strive to live peaceably. You ever met somebody that just seemed like they was always looking for a fight? It didn't matter what you did, they got upset about something and you just couldn't please them. There are some people that you just cannot please. 
That should not be us as Christians, though. That should never be us. The Bible says that as much as is within us, as much as we're capable, we should do our best to live peaceably with all men. The Bible says to uh, be peaceable, gentle, and showing all humility. So the biblical standard, how we can let our light shine before men that they may see Jesus Christ in us is that we are surrendered of our own selves, but also that we seek to be peaceable and to promote peace in this world. This world does not know much peace this morning. Can I get an amen there? We are, we are divided over politics. We're divided over uh, uh, government styles. And we're divided over finances. We're divided over sports. And there's division over everything. There's division. And, and the world's looking for peace, and they have no peace. And when they come to the doors of this church, you know what they ought to find? They ought to find and see and witness the peace of God that is in our hearts. We should be peaceable among ourselves. And so we should seek to promote peace that we live with one another. And so we find here that the biblical standard, when we live by it, we will have a life of surrender and a life of serenity that is promoting peace among all men. That's how we let our little light shine. By living to the biblical standard. The second way we let our light shine here uh, is through a personal story. We can take Edwin Thomas, for instance. Edwin Thomas Booth, that is. At the age of 15, he debuted on the stage playing trestle to his father's Richard III. Within a few short years, he was playing the lead in Shakespearean tragedies throughout the United States and Europe. He was the Oliver of his time. He brought a spirit of tragedy that uh, put him in a class all by himself. Edwin had a younger brother, John, who was also an actor. Although he could not compare to his brother, he did give a memorial interpretation of Brutus in 1863, the production of Julius Caesar. Two years later, he performed his last role in a theater when he jumped from the box of a bloody President Lincoln to the stage of Ford's Theater. John Wilkes Booth met the end he deserved, but his murderous life placed a stigma on his brother Edwin. And it, an invisible asterisk now stood beside the name in the minds of people. He was no longer Edwin Booth, the consummate tragedian, but Edwin Booth, the brother of the assassin. He retired from the stage to ponder the question why Edwin Booth's life was a tragic accident simply because of his last name. The sensationalist would let him, uh, wouldn't let him separate himself from the crime. What is interesting, though, is that he carried with himself a note that would have vindicated him and cleared his name from his, his sibling. And it was a letter from General Adams uh, Budo, Chief Secretary to General Ulysses S. Grant, thanking him for a singular act of bravery. While he was waiting for a train on the platform at Jersey City, a coach he was about to board bolted forward. He turned in time to see that a young boy had slipped from the edge of the pressing crowd in the path of the oncoming train. 
Without thinking, Edwin raced to the edge of the platform and linked his leg around a railing, grabbed the boy by the collar, and the grateful boy recognized him, but he did not recognize the boy. It wasn't until he received the letter of thanks that he learned the boy he saved was Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by his brother, and yet Edwin saved the life of Abraham Lincoln's son. But he lived a life in shame, never sharing the message that he had. To let our light shine before men, we must, we must come to a place where not only do we live by a biblical standard, but we must have a personal story of our encounter with Jesus Christ. In verse number 3 here of Titus chapter 3, the Bible says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. It was a life of disgrace. And I want you to know that But without Jesus Christ, that's the type of life that we lived. A life of disgrace, a life where our testimony, our personal story was one of tragedy. And before I had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, I too had a life that was a testimony of shame and disgrace because of sin. Sin had marred and mocked my life until there was nothing but a pile of embarrassment left. That's what sin does. Sin will take and rob us of our joy. It'll cause people to look at our lives. And the world might look on it and say it's okay. But before God, our creator, I knew that before him, I was unworthy. I was filthy. I was dirty because of my sin. And I lived a life of disgrace because I did not know Jesus Christ as my Savior. But then verse 4 comes along. Verse number four, the Bible says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. A life of disgrace turned into a life of grace. I've been saved. I've been bought with a price. I've been, I, I have a testimony. I have a story that I can share. And the story is not one of me. Look at me. But my story is this. It's all about Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. And I stand before you this morning a cleansed sinner that my sins have been washed away. Not because of myself, but because the grace of God came into my life. And he took away the shame and the disgrace and the filth. And he washed me in his precious blood. A life of grace because of Jesus Christ. That's how I let my light shine. Because I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I stand before you redeemed, a child of God, and my story is this. It's all about Calvary. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about him and who he is. And I can raise my hands this morning today and say, thank you, Lord, that I stand before you, a child of grace instead of disgrace. Thank you, Lord, for your work in my life. And I can let my light shine before this lost and dying world all because of Jesus Christ.
his great mercy that he saved me. It's not me, it's all him. Then we let our light shine thirdly this morning, and I'll be done. Because we've experienced the power of salvation, it does two things in our life. The power of salvation has works in our life so that we can, there is a new nature. Paul said, the old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. The power of salvation will do this. Look at me in verse number 6. It says, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It is our hope of Jesus Christ. The power of salvation is our hope. When we recognize that it's been poured out through Jesus Christ, when we know who our hope is, when we know what our hope is, we can have a life that reflects the light and love of Jesus Christ. Heard a sermon this week, and it said, they said, the greatest mission field in Tennessee is not outside the doors, it's in the church. It's in the church. I don't know that that's not accurate. It may be very true. Do we know Jesus Christ? Do we have hope? Do we have hope? I know I've shared this. I don't know if I shared it from the pulpit, at least in talking with some. Years ago in the Philippines, we were going down the road. And before Halloween, they have All Souls Day and All Saints Day. And going down the road, on All Saints Day, the city turns, Manila City, around 30 million people, turns into a ghost town. You don't see anyone. Instead, they're all in the cemeteries trying to pray their loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. How sad is that? And my wife's here this morning. She can testify. We were in there, and I began to talk to the taxi driver. And fortunately, most of them speak English very well. And we began to speak to him. And I said, I said, uh, you're not at the cemetery. He said, I have to work. He said, I said, are you going to go later? He said, I am. And they buy candles and they go. And what they do is they believe everything's aligned just right where it's the, the closest that the underworld and the heavens are all aligned. And they're trying to, at that time, pray their loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. And I asked our taxi driver, I said, who are you praying for? And he said, it was his mother. I said, well, is your mother in heaven or is she still in purgatory? He said, I don't know. I said, was she a good, a good Christian lady, good Catholic? He said, absolutely. I said, well, what about you? He said, oh, he said, I'm, I'm a great Catholic, good Christian. I said, how long do you pray for? He said, I pray for her all the time to go from purgatory to heaven. I said, and it hasn't worked. And he put his head down. I said, let me ask you a question. If your mother was one of the best Christians you know, Catholics, and you're one of the best Catholics you know, and you have been unsuccessful in your attempts to pray her out of purgatory, I said, sir, let me ask you a question. I said, who's going to pray you out? 
And he began to weep. He began to cry. And didn't pull off the side of the road, stopped dead center in the middle of the road, put his brakes on. Stopped dead in the road. I said, sir, I said, can I tell you how you can have hope? Can I tell you how you can know that when you die, you can spend eternity in heaven? He said, yes. And right there in the middle of the road, I led him to Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is our hope. But without him, we have no hope. He's our hope. And then verse number seven and eight, and I'm done. Verse number seven, it says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. We let our light shine by having the hope of salvation in Jesus, but also when we recognize that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Because we have a heritage. Because we're joint heirs. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 17, the Bible says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We're joint heirs with Christ. I want you to know that right there with the saving grace of God, this is one verse that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. That we're joint heirs with Christ. How could I be joint heirs with him? Who is righteous and holy and knows no sin. There's only one way. It's called I've had a blood transfusion. I've been covered in the blood. I'm joint heirs because of the blood of Christ that's on my life. And when we recognize that, listen, we are joint heirs with Christ, with a holy, righteous God, how can I do anything else but let my light shine? Well, we're going to let him shine. You know the children's song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Do we let it shine? Do we let the light of Jesus Christ shine in our life? Paul, this here in Titus, he's getting his final notes before he dies. In the closing words of his great ministry, Paul says, listen, I I want you to know that there's a world that's watching you that needs hope. Let your light so shine before men. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you in prayer. Lord, this morning we ask that you might speak to our hearts. Lord, I don't know, maybe there's someone here in our midst today who does not know you as their Savior. God, if that's the case, may they surrender and give their life to you. Lord, maybe there's Christians who are here, God, that are saved. Yet, their light does not shine. 
God, may you help us, Lord, to become serious about the things of God. Lord, I sincerely believe, according to your word, that the fields are widened to harvest. God, it's almost too late. Lord, your return, I believe, is imminent. Lord, may we live our lives in such a way, Lord, that when we stand before you, we will not be ashamed. But that we've been faithful to do good works. What I pray may be honored and glorified. In Christ in my prayer, amen.